Well, good morning, brothers, sisters, and friends. I hope that you all are doing well this morning. And if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, and we'll be there in just a few moments. We are still at the burning bush narrative, and we will be at the burning bush for just a few more weeks, two more. In the next two weeks, we're going to see or hear how Moses is going to continue to ask questions to the Lord. And as he asks these questions, he's showing his reluctance on why he should not be the one that goes back to Egypt and do what the Lord has told him to do. Last week, we covered the the first two questions that Moses had for the Lord. And in those questions, we saw how God has revealed himself. First, the Lord has revealed himself in the burning bush, right? The burning bush that's not being consumed. And mercifully, God tells Moses to take his shoes off because he's standing on holy ground. The holiness of that ground is not because of its place, but because of the presence of God. Before Moses even asks questions, God speaks to Moses and tells him how to approach. Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And Moses responds in terror. He's in fear before the holiness of God. And then God begins to speak to him and tells him that he, ha- he knows of his people's afflictions at the hand of their Egyptian taskmasters. And he says, Moses, I'm sending you to be the deliverer. I'm sending you to bring out your people out of slavery and take them into the promised land. But Moses begins to ask questions. He asks questions because he doesn't want to be this instrument of redemption. And he asks, and it is sort of a sensible question. Moses, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? I'm old. I'm a shepherd. I've already failed. No one listened to me then. Why would they listen to me now? Why would they follow me? I I just can't. And God says, exactly, Moses. Exactly, Moses. You can't. You, you, You can't. But I will be with you. I will be with you, and I will give you a sign. I will give you a sign that if you listen to me and you act by faith, And all of Israel will come out to this mountain and wonderful promise and provision to Moses that God has made to his people. And that promise is a promise that continues even to us today. As Jesus has told us, I am with you always to the end of the age. The presence of God with his people. But in verse 13, Moses asks his second question. Well, what is your name? What am I to tell them? What am I to tell your people? Who am I to tell Pharaoh sent me? And God answers him with his covenant name. I am who I am. I will be what I will be. I am Yahweh, the Lord. There is no one like me or equal to me. I am beyond your understanding and all of your comprehension. I am showing you that in my name, I am eternal. I am immutable. I am self-revealing and self-determining. Finish chapter three. We're not going to hear Moses's questions. That'll be till next week. But actually, what we will hear is the answer to this question of who are you? And our answer to this question, the answer, we hear detailed information to Moses of what he's supposed to do. Moses, this is what you're supposed to do. Think about how rare it is for Moses to get this kind of detail on what it is to say and what it is to do. I mean, he tells them exactly what to say, right? It'd be like the Lord writing my sermon and giving it to me. He tells them exactly what to say and what to, and technically he has, right? So it's right here. 
And in verse 15, God tells Moses exactly what to do. Go to the Israelites. Tell them that Yahweh has sent me to deliver you. And he would be remembered, his name, throughout all generations. Verse 16, Moses, go gather the elders of Israel and say to them. And then in verse 18, this is what you say to Pharaoh. Now, now looking at chapter 3 again together, let's look at verse 16 and let's read to the end of the chapter. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise bring you up out of affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please... Let us go into a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. When you go, you shall not go empty. Each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy inspired and errant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Now, certainly we hear God's command upon Moses and what he wants him to do. But what I want you to see this morning from this passage is I want you to see very clearly at the center of this passage is God. God is the center of the passage. He speaks in first person directly to Moses. And he's calling him to be the instrument to deliver his people, right? Here's all you have to do, Moses. All you have to say, and I will do the rest. And, and we also see in this passage, Moses is learning, to, learning what it means to be a prophet, right? To declare the, the word of God to his, to his people. Moses is being commanded and encouraged and exhorted and taught. But Moses isn't the speaker here. He's not the point here. It's the Lord. It's Yahweh. It's I am. The one who has revealed himself to the deliverer of his people. He has given him his name. And now by telling Moses what he knows and what he is going to do. Yeah, Moses is going to gather the elders and he's going to speak before Pharaoh. But he wants Moses to know that it is him the Lord that is doing all the work on their behalf. And that is what's going on in this passage. It's me, Moses. It's me. And in God's word, commands to Moses, we see this revelation here. We see the Lord is revealing himself more and more to Moses. Revealing who is this I am. We see being revealed his character and his nature. So in this, this question of what is your name and, and who are you, God is revealing himself more and more to Moses and even in these commands. When Christina and I were dating, it was a short amount, time amount of dating we did. Go now. I knew our dating relationship was moving on a path to marriage, and as a dude, you don't say that to her. You'll skip away, um, at least not in the very beginning. Um, it didn't take me long to figure that out, 
but I still wanted to know and I needed to know about her. Down on dates when we, when we could, especially in the beginning, I would have questions that I wanted to ask. In fact, I would, I would have these questions already prepared and sometimes I would write the questions on a, on a little index card and I'd have them in my pocket like a nerd. Out and be like, so. <laughs> and as, as dumb as that sounds, I wrote it down and I would share them. As dumb as that sound, I did that because sometimes I would get nervous and I would just forget to ask anything. And I would, if you knew, if you know anything about our particular story, you know I would just be just so delighted that I even have a date with, with her. But I wanted to know her. I wanted to know her likes and her dislikes and her, her dreams. I wanted to know about her family and her hopes and her thoughts and her habits and her joys, her theology and what she believes about the Lord, etc. The things that made her, her. I wanted to know her, but I also needed to know her because I was hoping to marry her. I needed more revelation. I needed to know more. Now, in a completely, totally different situation, what we hear is the Lord, the I am who I am, not asking Moses about him, but we see the Lord revealing himself to Moses because Moses needs to know who the Lord is and what he is going to do. And so what I want us to do this morning in seeing that God is the central figure in this passage, I want us to carefully look at, at three things that the Lord is revealing to, him, uh, to Moses about himself and how that is pointing us to, to the Lord, right? What God is revealing about himself is, is pointing us to him, and in him it's pointing us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the first thing that what we see is the Lord revealing about himself is his kindness to his people. It's God's kindness to his people. He's revealing himself to Moses, his kindness. And we've already seen that how God has providentially cared for Moses, right? How, how Moses is raised up to be this deliverer, though reluctant as he is Right now, God, we see, has preserved Moses and has kept Moses alive to be his deliverer. We see also that though his people are in slavery, God still has preserved his people in slavery. And even in slavery, they have multiplied. They multiplied even under the wicked king who was trying to destroy them. Yet they were still flourishing in number. But here in verse 16, we hear directly the Lord recounting and saying his kindness toward his people. And he says to Moses, he, he says this as a command, right? Go and gather the elders of Israel and gather to them saying, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Now already off the bat, we should realize that God is repeating himself. He's already said this to Moses. And he uses his covenant name, right? He uses the Lord, right? You see that all caps in your Bible. Yahweh, I am. And, this is, and the, the meaning in this name is meaningful to them because it's to remind them of what God has done and what God is going to do. He's the God of Abraham. Remember Abraham and remember what God has done for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And in this reoccurring title that we see throughout the Bible, that he is the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob, it can become so familiar to us. It can become familiar to even them. And we can forget the centuries that have passed between Abraham and Moses. A huge vast of time. And in this huge vast of time, hundreds of years, Abraham was just a small family, relatively wealthy guy, but now a, a people that numbered as much as a nation, though 
slaves in a foreign land. They're being reminded of their God. They're being reminded of the, the faithfulness of their God. So that when they're being reminded of the faithfulness and the righteousness of God to their patriarchs, they, are, they can have faith to grasp the changelessness of God and whom God had spoken already to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Because as it says in verse 15, he is the same from generation to generation forever. And in that generation to generation and forever, this is the God, Yahweh, who still cares for them and is going to deliver them. And Moses is to tell the elders this. That is the one. This Lord, he has, he has revealed himself to me and he has sent me to you to deliver you. And he tells them specifically to say, he has observed you in what has been done to you in Egypt. Now the, the, the verb that the Lord uses here as translated in the ESV in particular, is observe. And that is a very versatile verb. And then throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament in particular, it is used in many different ways. Traditionally, it means to visit, right? That's like its, its main usage, to visit, or I have visited. And in the, the present tense use here, it matches Genesis 50, verse 24, when, when Joseph tells his brothers that, hey, I'm going to die, but, he says this, but the Lord will visit you. The Lord will visit you and bring you out of this land. So yes, the ESV is using the word observed, and it's one of its variants, right? And it's still, this is still a good translation. But what we are meant to see here is that the Lord hasn't just seen from a distance or observed from a news report or a newspaper or a television show or a YouTube video, or he's just heard it from someone else, but he has been with his people. He has observed firsthand. He has visited and has been with his people. He knows their affliction because he has been with them in their affliction. He has not left them. He is not distant. He has not been on vacation for 400 years, but he has been with his people throughout every single bit of oppression and affliction and injustice that has happened to them. And this is the kindness of God, that he is with his people. That he is the one who has now come to his people to aid his people. And that he is keenly and more specifically aware and sensitive to each and every individual and to the nation's needs. And brothers and sisters, is that not something that we cannot relate to? Can we not? Is that not the same for us that the presence of God is with us? And even in the incarnation of Christ, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6. That in the kindness of God, though we were weak, in slavery to sin and death, at the right time, he sent his son. In verse 17, the Lord continues. And he says, And I promise that I will bring you up out of affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. A flowing. The Lord is going to bring them into a salvation. Not only out of slavery, but into a flourishing and plenty into a good life of a fertile land, in particular to a land that your family is from. This is your inheritance in good providence that I have ordained for you. And again, this is a promise that is recounting to what the Lord told Abraham in Genesis 15. 
are going to be enslaved in a foreign land, but I will deliver you into the land of the Canaanites. Deliverance isn't the end itself, but he tells us that there is an inheritance coupled with it. And again, brothers and sisters, isn't this familiar? Isn't this what we understand from the gospel? That the Lord who has once delivered his people from Egypt has now through Christ delivered his people from sin and from his wrath and from eternal punishment, but he doesn't leave us there. But that rather he also, he grants us a new name. He grants us a new family and he gives us a new position before him as sons. That he has for us an inheritance. An inheritance that we learn from 1 Peter is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. And it is kept in heaven for you. In Christ, brothers and sisters, we are forgiven of our sin. And both rectified and then opens the door to a blessed future in him. And so we can remember the promise from Jeremiah 20. Babylonian captivity that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And we know that in Christ, by his grace, he restores us to abundant life, into a true future with hope and joy, no matter what happens. So when Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 18, tells us that, that, that God promises that he will save us, that he promises that he would save us, and he swears an oath by which he will save us, that those who, as it says, we who fled for our refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Which is why he says in verse 19 that we have this sure and steadfast hope of, of the soul, a hope that enters into, a play, into, into the inner place of the curtain. In Hebrews 9, it tells us of the, the continuing of this promise. He says that in this promise that uh, this promise has been sealed with blood. This promise has been sealed with blood, the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And as we, as the church, we have the Lord's Supper together next Sunday. It is a sweet reminder of the promise that he has set for us, the covenant with his people. And a covenant is more than just a contract. Again, 20 years ago, Christina and I were married. And we both promised to one another that we would love and we would cherish one another for the rest of our lives. We covenanted together. And she became my wife and I became her husband. And that change, that covenant then changed our relationship in a profound way from that day. And here's why. Because covenants bind people together, not just in a contract, but they bind us together in relationship. Brothers and sisters, the promise that God has made to us in Christ, the covenant by which is of his blood, has changed our relationship with him. It has changed our identity and given us that new name. And now we have become his people. He is showing us his kindness in this promise. The promise that he speaks here in Exodus 3 is pointing and reverberating to the promise that is fulfilled in Christ. Because every promise has its yes and amen in Christ. In verse 18, the Lord shares more of his kindness. It says, and they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord. 
In the first verse 18, the Lord is telling Moses that, hey, the elders, they're going to listen to you. They're going to listen to your voice, meaning they're going to believe you, Moses, and they're going to want to follow you. Now, this is the exact opposite of the experience that he had in chapter 2 when the Hebrews had rejected him. And this is one of the main objections that Moses has. It's going to be hard enough to try to convince Pharaoh to let my people go. But if my own people is a bust, why would I go? But God is assuring Moses that the elders are going to listen to him. They're not going to reject you. They're going to embrace you, and they're going to follow you. But there is more here, revealing of the, the Lord's kindness. In fact, what we see is the Lord's patience in a way that he wants Moses to communicate and to approach Pharaoh. Now, clearly, the end game is for the, the, the Lord to lead Israel to be free and to leave Egypt, not just to go into the wilderness for a three days journey to worship and come back. So the question is, is why would God tell Moses to go say this to Moses or go say Pharaoh? And I think what's happening here is the Lord is kind of giving Pharaoh a way out. He's kind of giving a Pharaoh a way out, make, making one simple request to him. Not complete abolition, but one simple request. And according to Egyptian code found on ancient Egyptian tablets, it was said and it wasn't uncommon for slaves to ask this kind of request. Slaves to be let go for a few days to leave Egypt to go worship and offer their sacrifices and then to come back and to come back to their masters. And they would let them go more often than not because they didn't want their slaves making offerings in their land to unknown gods. So they, would, they set this principle up for them to do so. And so this was a request, this request that God is telling Moses to ask Pharaoh is a very simple request. It's a very reasonable request that if the king was reasonable, then he would allow this. And I think this is meant for us to understand God's kindness. That even now, after hundreds of years of bondage and slavery, God is still showing his patience with Pharaoh. I believe that the Lord is showing Moses the extent of his heart. So in verse 19, we know what the Pharaoh's response is going to be. And yet we see here God's patience. We see mercy to a sin guilty in their sin has not the Lord still today and even love to a wicked still guilty in their sin. Why hasn't he just destroyed the whole world? He's still saving his people. But how about you? Recall, can you recall every day of patience that the Lord has given to you and that he has had with you? Can you recall all of his kindness? We all want God to be judged and we want him to execute his judgments on the wicked. But we are so quick to forget But by his grace, he has given you faith to believe, brothers and sisters. Oh, how patient. Oh, how patient he has been with us. How patient has he been with you? 
how he has lavished on you his grace, his grace upon grace. In sending his son, he fulfilled the promise to bring into his covenant with his son. Grace to save sinners such as us. Oh, the kindness of God. Second thing that we see is the Lord revealing to us is his sovereignty. Whenever we talk about the character and nature of God, nine times out of ten, the point of the sermon you'll find in there will be the sovereignty of God. We kind of have to. It's in our name. But this text green. Look at verse 19. This is what God says. It says, but I know. Here's that first person, right? But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And emphatically in these verses, right, we're, we're seeing first person, right, God. God personally going to act on their behalf. I know. I will stretch out my hand. And I will do it. Just sit back and watch, Moses. You're going to make the request, and you're going to see where Pharaoh is. You're going to, you're going to understand the level of his wickedness and the hardness of his heart. And I'm telling you that because I know just as I know the elders are going to accept you, Pharaoh is going to reject you. Think about that. Go ask Pharaoh to let my people go, and guess what? He's going to say no every time. He's going to say no every time. So why even ask? Right? Maybe that could be Moses' next question. So why even ask? Why can't I just show up and everything's done? Right? And everything's ready to go. But think about this. Moses didn't know what lied ahead. Like he didn't know what this meant, the signs, the wonders, the stretching about his arm, and what that actually means, which partially could be why he doesn't want the job. Pharaoh, at this point, has no clue what's going on, and he has no clue what's about to happen to him or to his country, no matter with all the power he has and with all the manipulation he can do. But here what we see God revealing is that there's nothing hidden from the Lord. There is nothing hidden from the Lord. And here in this one line, we see the sovereignty of God in display in his foreknowledge of things to come, in his foreordaining of things. Knowing of everything, right? His and what will happen, not because he can look into the future and then predict what's going to happen based upon various variables. That's not, how, that's not God's foreknowledge. No, his foreknowledge is based upon his foreordaining of everything. His divine decree that he has set into place and has planned everything from the smallest into the greatest of detail in this universe to work according to his will and for his glory. He knows everything. He knows Pharaoh's response. He knows the response of the, the elders because he has ordained it. And the Lord will act according to what he has ordained for the purpose of doing what? Compelling Pharaoh with his mighty hand. Now it would seem in this passage, this is very interesting here, that it seems that the, that, that the Lord is already starting to, to really show how big and how sovereign and how powerful he is over Egypt. 
Egypt is still massive in the eyes of Moses, but God is showing him, even in the words he is saying here, that they are nothing. Because this language that, that, that God would use and outstretch his mighty arm is typically the kind of language that the Pharaoh would use to destroy his enemies. It would say that the Pharaoh has gone out with his mighty arm and has smoted his enemies at his will. And here's God saying, no, by my mighty hand, by my mighty hand. And Pharaoh, whether he knows it or not, he is engaged in a war with Yahweh. But Pharaoh's arm will prove to be weak and puny. Sure, his arm can enslave men and it can destroy nations. But in comparison to the sovereign, great I am, he is nothing. Sure, I can beat my boys in arm wrestling. Want to watch? Go get them. I will beat them every single time, maybe for a couple years, but I'm going to take it while I can. They will go down every single time. They want, even if they just want a regular wrestle, I can take both of them at the same time. Little chumps. And they do. They take their chances. They jump on me, and we fight, and we wrestle. I can put one arm behind my back, and I can take them. Blindfold me. I can take them. But the outcome would be very different. In his prime, one of the arm wrestle me. Or regular wrestle. How terrifying would that be? That outcome would be no match. The Lord doesn't just beat Pharaoh in arm wrestling or wrestling. No, no, no. He bends Pharaoh's will to his own. And he bends his will one step at a time. One step at a time with frogs, gnats, and flies, and boils, and hail. One thing at a time. And he just bends him and bends him and bends his will to his own. Why? Because he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And when we read in verse 20, the Lord reveals to Moses. He doesn't tell him all the details, right? We know the details of what God is going to do because we, we happen to know Exodus somewhat, right? But Moses doesn't know every detail at this point, but he tells him just enough. I'm going to stretch out my hand and I'm going to strike Egypt with wonders. I'm just going to flex my muscles and he's going to let you go. Meaning just by his hand. Just by the hand of the great I am is sufficient to deliver his people from the most powerful nation on the planet. And he will show his wonders. And certainly describing his supernatural power of creation to, 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 to use for his will. Like I said, the frogs and the gnats and the hail and the darkness and the sickness and the disease, etc. But what is on display in these wonders and stretching out his hand and striking them is his sovereignty and his omnipotence, his power, his power over creation and his power over men. Why does the Lord show his sovereign foreknowledge, foreordaining, and power? He does so to redeem and to deliver his people. It was about displaying this power and glory into the nations that this God is none like any other. That he is Yahweh. And by an outstretched arm, he has delivered his people. And so this, this shows us. Shows us. Like this is the, the pattern of what is to come. And it shows us what, what God has ordained. 
And what God has ordained is in the sending of another deliverer, capital D, another savior, capital S, in the sending of his son that he has ordained in the sending of his son, the son of God. God ordained the betrayal of his son. God ordained the arrest of his son. God ordained the beating of his son. That God ordained the murder of his son on the cross. God ordained the murder of the son of the son of God on the cross to be our atoning sacrifice. God ordained that. And as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works. Here's your signs. Here's your wonders. Here's the outstretched arm, right? Wonders and signs God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him. You killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it's not possible for him to be held down by it. By the sovereign power of God, he showed his wonders and his strength through Jesus Christ that he was sovereign over all creation healing the sick and the lame and raising the dead in control of all nature, calming the storms and turning water into wine. And he was delivered unto death to be the atoning sacrifice and by the powerful, sovereign hand of God, he was raised from the dead on the third day. And Moses was just asked to take him three days into the wilderness. On the third day. And the same sovereign hand and power that raised the Son of God, brothers and sisters, is the same power that has saved us and has redeemed us. And the third thing we see is the Lord revealing to us is his provision. When we look at verse 21, the Lord continues and he says... I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver or gold or for clothing. You shall put them them on your sons and your daughters, and so you shall plunder. Not just the powerful that the Lord has power over, but even the hearts of all people. And take back in chapter 1, we saw how the Egyptians' feelings toward the Israelites changed. Changed from acceptance, and yeah, they just, they live here, to fear and loathing them. And, and that's the, the backdrop of the, the transformation that, that God says will take place. The Lord transformed their relationships and their conditions and their status once hated to now being favored, slaves given the wealth of Egypt. And again, this is the fulfillment of the promise of God's people. Genesis chapter 15, 13 and 14. God said to Abraham, he's going to take you out of slavery. He's going to give you the land of Canaan, but you're also going to take the possessions of your captors. Is God showing that he fulfills his promises to his people and that Every generation can look back and see and hear that that Yahweh keeps his promises. But we also see and hear that this God is showing his care for them and sending them out and providing for them. Not going in poverty, but in wealth. Going out with gold and silver and clothing. They're not going out empty-handed in uh, tattered rags must have been a funny sight to watch a bunch of Hebrews dressed up in Egyptian clothes walking out. And again, the Lord puts them in such a place, favor, that they'll get this gold and this clothing and it'll be given to their women. Now, all they have to do is ask, can I have that? Yep, here you go. 
Can I take that with me? Take whatever you want. And we see the irony again that the Lord who has named himself, I am that I am, the, the one who will be remembered for all generations will, will now put the, this, this forgotten Pharaoh in his place. And again, it's these, these women who will plunder Egypt from house to house. Like the, the Hebrew midwives we saw earlier, Pharaoh's daughter being used to preserve those people and, and Moses. Women, again, here used in the restoration of God's people. And God is fulfilling his promise to them to richly provide for them and that he has not forgotten them. And that he will not only give them freedom and a place to live, but he will give them wealth. He will give them wealth. And as we prepare to, to close, I, I want to remind you of an amazing verse of this same kind of promise. This same kind of promise, whether they, though it may not be in gold and silver and rich clothing, we see the same kind of promise made to us in Christ, in the gospel. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know, there's a, there's a false belief that, that runs its way through Christianity sometimes. And that's to think that God, though he has redeemed you and though he has delivered you and through Jesus Christ from from death to life and eternal life. But the, but the false belief is to say that somehow, even though God has done this for us, that somehow he's going to leave something out. That somehow I'm going to still need something. Somehow I'm still going to want something. I'm, I may be following Jesus and following Christ, but in this Christian life, I, I feel like as if I'm missing out on something. Or God may just take something away from me. He may just snatch something away from me. Sometimes in suffering, this is what is revealed. That it's easy to believe these things. Or maybe it's when we watch the world and we think, I think tragically we think, look how much fun they can have. There are doubts that creep in. Believing that God has held out or keeping something from us. But Paul here in Romans 8, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is reminding us that the Lord has already given us the greater. He's already given you the greater. He has already given you his son, Jesus Christ. He has already given to you, he's already given to us, and to me, the greatest. And if he has given us his son, how is there anything else that he could possibly fail to provide? How could there be anything else? No, we in, in our lives, we're, we're quite rich. We're, we're wealthy. But in many ways, brothers and sisters, we should praise God that he has not given us the wealth of the nations because it is nothing in comparison to what he has given to us in Christ. He has given us so much more. He has given us the wealth of heaven. He has given us his son, Jesus Christ. And so what is the point of these things? What are the point of these three, of these three things of God's kindness and his
revealing himself in this way and in these commands to Moses? What is, what is God doing and showing and reminding Moses of his kindness and his sovereignty and his provision? Why would we talk about such old ideas in such a modern world? Well, number one, because they're true. First and foremost, they are true. And second, it is because through him, he has brought us into salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. He has, in his kindness, in his grace, in his mercy, saved us. And we see his sovereign hand in leading us in that, by leading us into salvation and faith in him. And we see his provision of, of giving us his son, the greatest of all gifts. Third, the reason why we do this is because of why we're being reminded of these things is this, is it is for your worship. It is for your worship. So that you can delight in what you know. You can delight in him. That you can be satisfied in him. That you can enjoy him. That you can glorify him. That you could praise him and sing to him and pray to him. This story is more than, is more, uh, is more than just about Moses. It is about the great I am who saves his people for his glory and your joy. And so our response this morning as the church is worship. Is to delight in him and to remember his kindness and his fulfilled promises and his soon promises that he will fulfill to remember his sovereign hand and how he has enacted all of these things according to his grace and his mercy to save you. And to remember that he has given us all that we need in his son, Jesus Christ. And to that as a church, we can say, amen.